The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, Trauma 101 for Educators, presented by Dr. Richard Booth. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please complete the survey in the description below for your chance at winning a $100 gift card. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining this important webinar, Trauma 101 for Educators. I'm Sarah Dinklage, the Executive Director of Rhode Island Student Assistance. RISAS is a nonprofit agency that provides substance use prevention and mental health support services in Rhode Island, middle and high schools in 32 districts. We're proud to bring you this series of webinars focusing on youth mental health and trauma and the unique role of parents and educators play in fostering resilience and mental health in children. This series is brought to you with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Located below the video, you'll see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page where we will let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition to these items, we've created a post survey to get your input on the content provided. After completing the survey, you will also have the ability to receive contact hours. There will be a reminder toward the end of the video to take the survey and to be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift card. And we hope that you will mm -hmm. complete that. Our presenter for this webinar, Dr. Richard Booth, is a licensed mental health counselor at CYC Rhode Island, Brown University, and in private practice. This training has been developed in partnership with the CYC Rhode Island. Dr. Booth's areas of expertise include the impact of trauma on the mental health of communities and individuals of color, effective strategies for educating students with behavioral health concerns and trauma, cultural competency, self-care, and the recruitment and retention of mental health clinicians of color. His warm and engaging style is sure to draw you in. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Booth. Well, it's wonderful to be here. And I think as just a preface, I want this training to be interactive. I really don't enjoy trainings where I sit here and drone on for hours about this magic content that I have. So what I'm proposing is a journey where I have subject matter and we work together, we interact and we make this learning something that is actually absorbed. Research shows that when people are engaged in their learning, it stays. So please, I'm gonna ask a lot of questions and they're not rhetorical. So I love feedback. And if you hear something and you're like, I'd like further explanation, please feel free. So as we begin, thank you very much for being here. Now the goals are for teachers and staff to receive introduction to trauma. And it's in the context of Providence Central Falls and how it serves in the classroom. It's within a series of trainings, and it'll be Trauma 101, where we learn about trauma. We then take our understanding of trauma, and the next module is asset-based mindset and classroom strategy, and how to de-escalate. How do we think about our students knowing the trauma is there, and how do we de-escalate situations? And then the third is honestly my favorite training. It is a self-care and secondary trauma. It's how do we take care of ourselves? We do a lot of work where we give and we give and we give. 
So how do we then put back into our coffers and make sure that we're still okay? So I'd like to just really, before we go on to objectives, start with my three assumptions. So when I do trainings, I start with three assumptions and it's to get a groundwork for what we're going, where we're going. The first assumption, and it also is the first chance for people to really start getting engagement and to have their voices heard. So the first is the assumption that you all care. I'm gonna assume people got into this profession because they cared about students, they cared about helping, and they didn't see this as a means of getting rich. If we all want to be rich, we would have studied um, GameStop and went on Robin Hood about three months ago, <laughs> but alas, we did. So for me, I think that understanding that at the heart of everything is true caring. So if we think of each other as caring when mistakes are made, we understand it's not taken with malice. It's taken with maybe there's a mistake. Maybe there's an attempt that went wrong. Maybe more information was needed. The second assumption is that we all have many roles. And these many roles that we have intersect as we conduct our daily everything with our students. And these roles are plentiful. And sometimes these roles aren't even what we signed up for or were trained for. So the first exercise I'd love to hear is, what are some of the roles that people found themselves in pre-COVID and post? I'll go, I'll speak. Oh, yes. <clears throat> so I am Diane Ferrara, and I was a student assistance counselor at Pilgrim High School pre-COVID and right up until January. And so as a student assistance counselor, I was working with students one-on-one -on -one and in small groups, mm -hmm. and actually sometimes the whole school doing prevention and intervention with substance yeah. use. And uh, since COVID, I start, I moved into a supervisory capacity. So mm -hmm. even during the pandemic, I my role has shifted, but it's still all about helping people. Yeah, it is. It's, it's interesting because one of the things that I found the role that really changed me was the role of teacher. I've taught before at a behavioral, at Department of Youth Services in Boston, this DSS where kids that are like locked up. So I taught there. I've done tutoring. I've done a lot of things in the educational system. But what's happened with COVID is I've now literally had to take on my wife and I, the role of teacher, educator, curriculum developer, finder, and a whole gamut of things that I wasn't trained for. I, this is a preface to anyone who has children, understand that no offense to you, but I have the greatest son known to humankind, okay? He is the bubbliest, dentist to menacest, greatest energy ever. And I also happen to have a newborn. She's now nine months. She is the greatest daughter anyone can ever have. So with that being said, teaching my son has been the most crazy thing in the world for us. He's smart. He went to a school where he was ahead. He went to a Spanish immersion school where they were also learning Mandarin. I don't speak Spanish. I don't know Mandarin. How are we going to get him that level of education while still teaching him the other things? And it was hard having to find tutors, having to find resources, and then to sit with him every day on his math, his reading, because we have to do these things, while creating the curriculum that then is available for his Spanish tutor to teach and his Mandarin tutor to teach him. And it has been the most 
incredible thing for me because I don't know how you all do it on a day-to-day basis. And so for me, I just want people to start thinking about your many roles and how they intersect. When people are talking about pre-COVID, what they were doing, and then post, it it changes even something simple like going virtual. Now what's happened is I used to be able to see someone face-to-face. I used to be able to touch someone, be able to see their expressions. They came and now it's virtual and it happened so fast. And the third assumption is that you're all intellectual stalwarts. And what I mean by that is we're gonna go over concepts and tangible tools and skills. And I'm assuming that everyone here has the mental capacity to understand the concepts, understand the tangible behaviors and then adapt and apply them to your own unique situations. When we're going through this, this discussion is going to be a guided tour into the minds of people who may be traumatized. What's happening in their bodies, what's happening in their minds, their meaning making, and how we play a big part in changing their lives. Now, I'd be remiss if during a training on trauma, we didn't talk about, even just briefly, the most prevalent and pressing trauma that we're all facing right now, which is COVID. So I'd like just a brief moment for everyone, just how are you doing during this pandemic, during a time where we're all traumatized, different levels, different reactions, but how are you all doing and making out during this time of trauma and COVID? I'd like to say something. Yes. Um, um, the first thing that I thought about was, you know, as an educator and as well as, you know, being in the mental health field, I think mm-hmm. the the perception is that we have to be good, right? Because we're also providing these services to others and we're dealing with that with their mental health. So I think it's tough being in a pandemic, mm-hmm. trying to make sure that I'm okay. And also not having that expectation on myself that because I am a mental health counselor, yes. that I have to be okay because I need, you know, yes. you know, there's yes. that expectation that I'm a counselor, so I have to be okay. You're the mental health person, so your mental health has to be perfect at all moments, at all times. You know, right. it's interesting because I listen to, as I'm looking at the chat and I'm seeing a lot of the things that are linked with trauma, missing your family, you know, learning all these new things that you have to do for the job, working from home, find, trying to find ways to stay connected. I mean, someone said they're worse after watching Tom Brady win, but that, 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 I'm kind of on a, woo, n- n- number seven. <laughs> I like when people who are mistreated and unappreciated get to kind of give a little something to the person that mistreated them to say, maybe you shouldn't have thought that way about me. I miss visiting my family. Yeah, these are things that we're all going through. And it's very, very hard. And what's happened is we're in a unique position in time right now where we all have a shared trauma. You see, before this, we had different traumas. So Full disclosure, I'm an inner city black male of Jamaican descent. So I was born in Jamaica, so I'm an immigrant. So my Jamaican experience coming here and living inner city Boston, late eighties, early nineties, when the murder rate was skyrocketing, where I was told to my face, I'd be dead or in jail by 25. So there were traumas that I saw, traumas that I experienced that impacted me growing up but everyone here had their own experiences. And we take our own life stories and histories with us into our interactions with our students and colleagues and everyone. 
But what's happened now is we literally are all sharing a common trauma that's overlying and underlying everything we experience. You think of how quickly things change. There was no preparation. There was no backstory. There was no, hey, everyone, I'd just like you to know that in about four months, we're going to have everything shut down. You're going to have to learn a whole computer system that you probably never even heard about because I have never heard of Zoom in my life until I was forced to hear about Zoom. And by the way, you won't be able to visit your family. You won't be able to see your kids. You won't be able to see your auntie, uncle, whoever you loved and cared about. Your relationship with them will be inextricably changed for the foreseeable future with no end in sight. We're all traumatized. So I really want to take this time to really just give some credence to that, that we are overwhelmed. And the, the changes are traumatizing to us, going back and forth from hybrid to regular to hybrid to regular to having students. I mean, it, 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 it's mind boggling that we're still able to function at such a high level when we've been through so much. I haven't seen my family in over a year and this is very hard. Yeah, it, it, it is. And being away from our loved ones and our supports are hard. So now imagine what our students are going through. Imagine what life is like for them, where a lot of times there's this myth about child resiliency. Children aren't more resilient than adults. They're actually more vulnerable. And what's our students' lives like when they've had the high levels of trauma they've already had, plus now COVID? So what I'd like is for this activity is for us to really start thinking about what's at the core? What got us into teaching? How did we make meaning, make sense of what we're doing and what got us there? Because as we go through our journeys as educators or people working with the school system, I want us to start knowing how bad it really is for our students and potentially how bad it is for us. Is anyone here familiar with the mythology of Sisyphus? And who was Sisyphus? Ah, so I hear, I see a yes, then regale me. Who was Sisyphus? Boulder up the hill, yes. That's it exactly. So Sisyphus was a human being who was very, very intelligent, crafty, and had a lot of hubris. And the gods did not like that. So he made the mistake of dying as mortals do. And the gods, vengeful as they are, punished him. And what they did was they punished him where they said, buzzards are going to pick at your body forever. However, you can leave anytime you want. How pray tell? See that boulder over there? If you could roll it up the hill without stopping, you go free. Now, the boulder going up the hill was just outside of human ability to do, no matter what he did. And as he'd go, he'd try, he'd try, he'd try, he'd try, and then invariably he gets tired. And as soon as he stops and gets tired, the boulder rolls right back down. I bring up the story because I want you to know that's kind of your job. The task that you're attempting to do is Sisyphusian. It is that difficult. So when we're thinking about what we're doing and how we're sometimes underappreciated, I want us to really understand what we're going up with. To know that what you're doing with your students may not meet the rubric for some outside agency's assessment of your performance. What you're doing may not change a test score right away. What you're doing may not even improve, in, improve the interest of the student right away. 
may not improve their attendance right away. But what you're doing is building connections and a rapport that will set the foundation for someone else to do it. They will remember you. And no, he never got the boulder up there. Always just a little bit outside of what he can reach. So what I'm proposing for us is a change in mind state. You're going to get yours up. That's right. And the way we get ours up is we change our mind state. We change our cognition, our meaning. making. We start learning and reconnecting with what got us into the field and use that as our rubric for measuring how we do. If we say we wanted to help and show we care, then we have to start doing that more. So I'd like to start talking. How did you get into teaching or educating or working in this system? Think about what got you here and how that is going to be the thing that warms you when things are at its coldest. Wanting to be a positive light for your kids. Yes, it is important. I got in teaching after I was diagnosed with cancer and the following month lost my sister and fought for her autistic son. I want to be there to support him, but not leave her work. Yes. You see, there's the caring again. There's the fighting and fighting. And wow, sorry to hear about the diagnosis and hopefully everything's well. But fighting, fighting for people who don't always have someone who's going to fight for them fighting for people who need you. And these are the traits that you take with you, that you bring with you. And these are the traits that make you special. Wanting to help students with career and college goals and help them believe in themselves. That's a beautiful thing because a lot of kids growing up don't believe in themselves. They're told things like they're going to be dead or in jail by 25. As I look back on things like that said to me in my youth, I wonder why would someone say that to a child? Did they think that somehow it would help me be motivated? Well, it didn't. It just made me feel like things were hopeless. I love kids, love literature. Teaching was plan B, but should have been my plan A. Advocating for students, their families who are not proficient in English. Yeah, and it seems that a lot of people advocating for students and families. And if we start understanding the traumas that they face, we start realizing why it's so hard for them to make that next leap to academic success when they're still in survival mode. So what I'd like is for the next slide, we start talking about the definition of trauma. When people say trauma, people often think of different things. So we're gonna have a definition so that we're all on the same page. Trauma results from an event or a series of events or set of circumstances that are experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or threatening. It has a lasting adverse effect on the individual's functioning in their physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Now, when we look at trauma, we see that trauma doesn't impact everyone the same way. Trauma sometimes shows itself in ways that people aren't familiar with, where we have a perception of trauma and what people are supposed to do. And when they don't act that way, we sometimes don't realize how traumatized they are. I remember where I worked at a clinic in Boston, and I'm at, it was in the same community I lived in. And the psychiatrist and I, Dr. Cam, I never forget this. It was around, we have a two o'clock staff meeting, or maybe it was noon, it was so long ago. And before the meeting, we're going to get some food. So we go to the corner sub store and we're in there, pizza, we're getting our food. While we're there, you hear pop, 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 pop. Everyone in the store gets down but Dr. Cam. We know what it is he doesn't. So I grab him and I pull him down. I said, Dr. Cam, get down, gunshots. 
So we hear a car screech and everyone gets up. I walk over to the counter, grab my food, and I'm walking out the door. I'm holding the door open for Dr. Cam and I realize something. Dr. Cam's not behind me. I look, he's still on the floor. I go, come on, Dr. Cam, get up. It's time to go. He was like, no, how do you know? I said, okay, stand up. I was like, you heard shots. Then a car, correct? He's like, yeah. I was like, drive by. I was like, do you hear any screaming, crying? He's like, no. I was like, no one got hit. I was like, you may or may not hear police, but it's time for us to go. So tentatively he goes and we walk back into the direction of the shots to the clinic. And we're now at the meeting. At the beginning of the meeting, and I have to tell everyone, yes, therapist meetings are exactly what you think they are. We have our, so how was your weekend fest? And my weekend happened to be great. I was like, this was great. I saw my friends who came in town and he jumped into my sacred space of telling my weekend. And he was like, no, Mr. Booth, just, just, just saved my life. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, there was, there was a draft by and Booth grabbed me and pulled me down. I was like, no, Dr. Cam, you, you weren't in real danger. I, you're, you're okay. And for, I think, over a month, every day he saw me, he thanked me for saving his life. And I thought him strange. Until older, I started to reflect on those moments, and I realized it wasn't him that was strange and abnormal. It was me. Who has a drive-by protocol? Who, after shots, gets up, gets their food casually, and walks back in that direction? But I had seen this so often. I'd have been exposed to such high levels of trauma that I didn't react to it in an outward manner. That if someone was looking, that they would be able to see as he's trauma reacting. But I was. So as we talk about what trauma is, we have to start not looking at trauma and seeing what it is and how it impacts people. So when we think of acute trauma, that's something that happens once, right? So if you could think of something that happens once, and could be traumatizing. What's an example of an acute trauma? Getting bit by a dog. Yes, getting bit by a dog. Car accident, see in a car accident, beautiful. These are things that happen to us once, but once it happens, being in a fight, yes, our brain remembers it. And our brain registers this trauma and it makes a memory so that when something, <laughs> if you lived in the Bronx in the mid eighties, I, I understand, natural event, tornado, earthquake, yes. Now it happens once and it makes an imprint on your body and it makes you in situations that are similar, fearful, held up at gunpoint at a gas station. Yes. And when we look at chronic, it's ongoing or repeated exposures to traumatic events. What do you think of some chronic traumas? Poverty, sexual abuse. Yes. Hunger. Yes. It's ongoing. You molested a child over and over and over again. Yes. These are DV. Yes, these are chronic. They're happening over and over again. And it wasn't just a one-time thing. Now we look at complex trauma. So complex is multiple chronic exposures to traumatic events. And it's most often interpersonal. So things like living with an addict. Yeah, when we think of abuse, it's usually multiple. And it's happening over and over and it's more than one multiple traumas. So if someone has parents that are substance abuse, chances are there's other traumas as well such as maybe hunger, such as poverty, such as maybe other types of abuse. So as these are happening, it's again, causing an imprint in the brain and it's causing physiological reactions and changes in people. Historical trauma, 
Historical trauma, emotional neglect. Yes, definitely. Historical trauma is a cumulative emotional and psychological wounding across generations. And it could happen and includes one lifespan. And it emanates from massive group trauma. What are some examples people think of historical trauma? Holocaust, yes. 9-11, yes. Genocide, yes. Whether it's the African genocide, whether it's slave trade, Jim Crow laws, whether it's systematic oppression, marginalization, or even when you think of now. You see, we're in a massive group trauma, which is COVID. We're in a massive group trauma. And what it is, is we're being traumatized and we're having reactions to it. But what we need to see is that these reactions are natural and that these reactions won't be the same for everyone. A lot of times, anger and aggression, those are obvious traumas that people will see. When the child is upset and they stomp and kick and scream, that gets the attention. But what happens to people who don't? So when we're looking at the types of trauma and we see the ones that are identified here, you know, living in adverse neighborhood conditions, abandonment, these are things that are going to impact people. When you witness violence, you're, you're being exposed to trauma. When you see this violence, this neglect, and by the way, neglect can be more harmful to a child than physical abuse because neglect is the taking away of any form of contact or affection. And that could harm someone in their development much more than abuse, which sometimes people are able to conceptualize within the confines of caring. When we look at how people deal, we see that people who experience a lot of these are in a constant state of trying to adapt to these traumas. And our students will be trying to adapt to these traumas. I worked at a behavioral school and there was a, I tend to, at the, at the behavior school, it was the worst school in Boston. When you walked in, there was a metal detector and then a police officer on the other side to pat you down. And this was the middle school, the high school, and the, the elementary. And what happened is when I did my internship there for a couple of years, they gave me kind of the really tough. So I had a female and her and I met in the hallway and her guidance counselor was like, do you have time for her? I was like, I'd love to, but my caseload's full. Every day she was like, boop, I don't care if your caseload's full, make room for one more. She's like, boop, make room for one more. I was like, fine, so I made room for one more. So I saw the young lady. I said, how you doing? We're gonna be meeting pretty soon. She was like, all right, cool. And this was the time of, I know the internet age moves fast, but I'm taking you back to, I think maybe 2014, 13 the Sharkeisha age. Sharkeisha was this girl who was in a fight and she beat the girl up and people were like, Sharkeisha, no, like stop. You're being too prodigious at the fisticuffs. So she looked like Sharkeisha and she was telling everyone, Sharkeisha's my cousin. So I saw her and I said, Sharkeisha's not your cousin. She was like, yes, she is. I said, what state does she live in? She was like, chill, chill. I was like, all right. I was like, you could say whatever you want to the public. But please, I'm the space where you don't need to do that. So our first meeting, she goes, my mother's a hoe. I'm sitting there like, oh, okay. When you say, and, and I need clarification. I go, when you say hoe, do you mean you don't like her? So you're just throwing out the word? 
or she's a sucker. So you're like, you're a hoe. She was like, no, I mean back pages. I was like, oh, okay. She's like, I don't know who my father is. I have people walking up to me telling me they might be my father because they knew my mother in a carnal fashion. And she did not say in a carnal fashion. And what happens is this girl was always pregnant. She was never actually pregnant, but she was always pregnant. And it was around the time I was having my first son. So my wife was pregnant. So it's probably around now, two years later, 2016. And I would say, I understand why you're doing it. And she would say, what do you mean? And I'd say, when we're neglected, when we're abandoned, we want attention. We want people to show we care. And who gets more love and care than a pregnant, except for maybe an infant. And by doing this, you're getting, you're trying to get both. But can we work on maybe finding ways for you to start getting the genuine affection you need? And we worked very, very hard for her to decrease these instances. And she was able to talk about how much this hurt her, the neglect, the not knowing, the feeling like you don't matter. So when we're looking at our kids, we have to understand what they're going through, even though we might not see it. If people saw her, this girl was a fighter. She beat people up. She would walk around with a bad attitude. And everyone swore she was this hard rock. But on the inside, she was the most tender and needing love person. And she was just begging for it. So we have to start looking at our students and understanding the trauma that they're experiencing is causing real changes in their bodies and in their lives. I think when we're thinking of why be trauma-informed, right? We have to think about it. One in four school-age children have experienced a traumatic event. That's a national statistic. But when we look at Central Falls and Providence, the number is, what do you think? So if it's nationally one in four, what do you think it is for Providence and Central Falls in the city? Three out of four, three out of four, so 75%, 50%, try 90. So it's 90% of our students have been exposed to trauma with an average of seven trauma exposures. So when we're looking at what's been going on with our kids, we need to start seeing that this is an epidemic. This is happening to our kids. It, 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 it is heartbreaking indeed when kids have been through all this trauma and they get older and they become adults, they should know what's right and wrong. But if they don't get the help as a child, hmm, this is a great thing. They grow up, but what happens is people think that if you've been exposed- So to- if I could just, what I was trying to say is just my experience with it. Is yeah. It's so heartbreaking because we go through all these trainings as adults about mm-hmm. these children, but if yep. they don't get addressed, they do grow up. Yep. They're and, still dealing with those adverse childhood yes. trauma blocks. Yes, that's, that's it, it, it could have been said better. They still grow up and they have these traumas. And oftentimes people think if you've been exposed to trauma, you automatically have a better understanding of what trauma is and you know what to do with the trauma. But that's not real life. What happens, and the reason why I found this this training particularly so important is we're going to ground this trauma knowledge in physiology. A lot of times when people think of physical ailments, they conceptualize it in terms of can or cannot do. So if my leg is broke, I cannot walk. If my leg's not broke, I can walk. But when people have trauma, emotional damage, mental damage, 
the concept is no longer can or cannot. It is desire to, strong enough, the will for. And the terms can and cannot are what really should be used. When you look at the prevalence of the trauma and understanding, I was at a school, I worked with a lot of schools, and there was a girl, she came in late every day. And every day it started to, people would get more and more frustrated with her. And they do the comments, oh, I'm glad you can make it on time. Oh, wait, you weren't on time and all this. So one day I said to her, hey, good morning, young lady. She's like, good morning, doc. I said, why are you late every day? She's like, you know, you're the first person I'd asked. I said, wow, sorry to hear that, but why? And she begins to tell me the story of her bad choices. So her bad choice was she dated a guy who was involved in things, shall we say. He had beef. He ended up getting locked up. Just because he's locked up does not mean his beef subsides or that people wouldn't find any way they can to harm him even through proxy of others. So she was walking to school in the morning and a car pulls up to her and it's a car full of males and they say, hey, aren't you so-and-so's female dog in heat? And they didn't say female dog in heat, they used a pejorative. And as she looks, they commence to present a firearm and point it at her. She runs away, scared, and gets away. So she takes this convoluted path to get to school every day. And instead of being applauded for coming to school, she gets mocked, jeered, derided because people don't understand trauma and how it might impact. Get some of the data. This is a screener that we're given to the kids. And you answer it affirmative, then you've been exposed to trauma. And what we're seeing is kids are exposed to a lot of trauma. Have you been in a serious accident where you could have been badly hurt? Have you yourself been slapped, punched, or hit by someone? Have you seen someone else being told they were gonna be hurt? Have you seen someone being slapped, punched, or hit? Have you been beaten up? Have you seen someone else getting beaten up? Have you seen someone else being attacked or stabbed with a knife? Have you seen someone putting a real gun at someone? Have you seen someone else being shot at or shot with a real gun? You see, these questions seem some fanatical. Like how many people are walking around seeing stabbings or being stabbed or seeing guns? And I tell you, growing up in school, me and my friends were talking, and he was like, yo, you remember T? I was like, yeah. He was like, yeah, I remember the time T was showing me the shotgun in his locker. I'm like, T had a shotgun in his locker at school? He's like, yeah, brought it every day. I remember when T had his hand broke because he was involved in things. And inside his cat, he had a knife. This was in school. I remember as a child, I went to a summer camp. This is in Boston. And in the summer camp, we were on field trips. And this was the day where they were redoing the front. So they were re-cementing everything. So it was quick dry cement all in the front. And on the way back, the counselors are smoking weed on the bus. And a counselor and another counselor exchange words. And it ends with, all right, when we get off this bus, and again, I'm cleaning up the language. We shall engage in fisticuffs. And the other young man said, I accept. They get off the bus and they start fighting. And one guy, is trying to drown the other guy in the quick dry cement. And the other guy who's the, the drown E, shall we say, pulls out a knife, 
stabs up the guy who's trying to drown him. I'm a child and I'm witnessing this right in front of me. School, the summer camp, was not canceled the next day. I don't even remember my parents being called about that incident. It just was. I remember someone walking home bloody. I don't know if it was the person who got stabbed or the person who did the stabbing. And when you think of this violence, this attempt at human life, I would love anyone here to guess what the fight was over. Marshall, I guess. At what do you think is so important? A girl, seat on the bus, a grape. Candy, one grape. And it was who was stronger. It was over a girl. It was all those things, but it manifests itself over a grape. A girl was handing a grape to someone. And another dude joking around just took it. Or maybe he wasn't joking. He took it. So the other dude said, yo, give me that, F, give me my effing grape. So the other dude says, or what? He's like, or I shall give you a sound thrashing after this bus stops. The other dude said, huzzah, a sound thrashing, thou doth propose. I accept. And hence, what happened? Our kids are seeing a lot of violence. Our kids around the way are seeing a lot of people hurt. And we have to understand how that impacts them when they get around us. When we think of trauma and we think of the prevalence, we have to start thinking, how does it break down? How does it impact? What's it look like? So when we're looking at the exposures at a glance, we have to see that 90% talked about separation and loss. When we see people have lost someone, been separated, I tell you, I didn't learn about therapists at a, as a job until a year after I graduated college. I thought therapists were social workers and all they did was come into people's home and take them away from their family because that was the experience of what I had around the way. When we're looking at separation loss, understand a lot of our kids are facing this. In high school, I went to a very, very prestigious high school. It was a high school for smart kids. It was Boston Latin schools, the oldest public school in like the universe, but it really isn't a public school. It's an exam school. It's just called public because you don't have to pay. It's an exam school that you have to have perfect grades getting up to it, perfect grades on the test, and then they accept you only in seventh and ninth grade. And I remember there was a kid there and me and my friends had this joke. We were like, yo, he just has the perfect head for crime. He had this like, his head was like a, a lollipop. It was just perfectly spherical. And he was one of the like toughest, baddest kids we knew. And we, he left the school because he was too thug. And we'd always wonder what happened to him. So one day, years later now, I'm working as a therapist for an art college in Boston. And one of the things we did as therapists was outreach. We wanted to get the community to know us before there was actually a crisis. So I'm talking to this person and he was like, well, do you have time now? I was like, actually, I do. Let's go. So we get, go back to my office and we're talking. And then I look at him. I say, excuse me, is your name so-and-so? He's like, yes. I was like, I have to let you know that I went to high school with you at this period of time, blah, blah, blah. He was like, I, that's no problem. But here he was, this person who I conceptualized as the perfect head for crime. And he was really, really super thug. Here he is in my office. And we're talking. And... At one point, he starts bawling his eyes out, sobbing uncontrollably. And all he kept saying was, why didn't she want me? Why didn't she want me? You see, he grew up traumatized. He was a bad kid. Him and his siblings got removed from their mothers. And she took everyone back but him. 
He lived with his grandmother and then she died and no one will take him. So during the time where I'm seeing him and he's acting out and I'm seeing him as just thug, he was going through unimaginable pain, separation and loss. And where do you put that pain? How do you express that pain? And I'll tell you a secret for people here who don't know. If you're an inner city male, there are only three ways to get props, validation or affirmation. One, can you fight? Two, are you fly? Three, do you get girls? That's it. And being fly, you could be athletic and that's part of fly or dress good or something like that. But it has to also be the purpose of getting girls. And can you fight? So if you're in pain and you don't want to be picked up and you want people to affirm you, you have to be one of those three. And he was in pain and he chose the thug. We look at fight culture. 86% of them been in fights. I remember that at the behavioral school, I had a student, good kid. He came to our school because of a fight. Him and a kid got into a fight. He, he was a good fighter, seems. He beat the kid up. So around the way the kid saw him, the kid had a bunch of dudes. They pulled out knives and they chased him. He had to run into a store, lock the door and like get rescued. And the crazy thing is the first Thing when his friends found out, you know, let's go ride. And he's like, I don't want to. And then the drama that caused with his people, like, why are you letting people do this to us? We should retaliate stronger, harder. We should fight to show how strong we are and protect. 45% of our students have been in a natural disaster. What do you think that 45% natural disaster number is now? 100, because COVID-19 is a natural disaster. It's a pandemic and we're all living through it. When we look at the types, of trauma. We see that fighting is something, violence is something that is often happening and it's protective. So when we see a lot of people seeing people beat up, seeing people hurt, the message is if you do not protect yourself with violence, you're going to be a victim of violence. And trauma reactivity is about survival and learning the rules of the environment you're going to be in most often. So I grew up in a city. I'll tell you, I was a Jamaican immigrant who was poor. So I had immigrant clothes. And by immigrant clothes, I mean clothes that my family thought were cool, but they were not cool in America. And then learning the rules of what was cool in America within the budget of what you had. I remember at first day of school, I wanted Adidas. I told my mother about Adidas. Adidas, Adidas, they have three stripes. I want Adidas. I, I wore a t-shirt and jeans, like, but I needed Adidas. So she got me, she was happy. She was like, look, I got you these. And they looked like Adidas at first until you counted the stripes. I'd love everyone here to tell me how many stripes does Adidas have? Three, three. No, four were the ones that I had. Who cares? Everybody cares. In case Swisses weren't even out there, Adidas had three and everybody cared. Run DMC was out. They had the shell toes like Adidas were, were popping. So now I have to wear Adidas that aren't really Adidas. They're what we used to call Bobos. And I don't know anyone from my generation, whatever, but they had a song about it and everything. And you did not want Bobos. So I would have to wear them. I would have to. So now I get school. I sit down. Worse than no shoes. Yes, they're worse than no shoes. 
I wish I could have worn those shoes. And people are like, yo, those are nice. Yo, I love the colors. Where'd you get them? And I'm trying to play it off so people don't look. And then one dude, I, me and him, I, 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 first day, I just knew I didn't like him. Because he's like, yo, those aren't Adidas. Those have four stripes. And he calls me out. Yes, he watered those to me. Publicly. Shamefully. You know what I did? I punched him in his face. Beat him up. And that was it. I had nothing. But I was Jamaican. And part of our culture is you do not let anyone disrespect you for any reason. And violence is an acceptable response. Funny thing is, I was poor. I felt bad. I didn't have anything. But me doing that, it got me props. People would not believe that at first. They would try to pick on me. As I'm Jamaican, we say things like the number three was said tree, the letter Z was said Z. So people would have me say three. Like, Rich, Rich, say three. I go tree. They'd laugh. I'd hit them and I'd get in trouble. The teacher would see me because, you know, if you retaliate, you're always the one getting caught. And I just would reach over and I'm getting in trouble. And the teacher, now I'm in trouble and I'm crying. And the teacher's like, why did you hit the kid? I'm like, I'm telling you, it's a tree. And I sound like an idiot because who hit someone because they told him to say tree? Like what? I didn't have the language to say this person was making fun of me and trying to make me feel less than. But sadly, that saved my life my willingness to fight, my skill at it, made it so that when I did it and did it often enough, people were like, okay, let's don't, don't mess with that crazy Jamaican kid. So even when I didn't have, I was able to have some form of identity. So what our kids are going through with all this trauma is they're trying to make sense of the world. They're trying to fit in. They're trying to find a sense of success within the rules of what they're living. And sometimes when they come to us, they don't have the language to let us know what's going on or how it's impacting them. So we have to have more understanding. There's a high prevalence of loss, grief, fighting, and some of it, a lot of it is protective and adaptive. So as we go on and we look at trauma in Providence Central Falls, I'd like to have a brief discussion where we talk about it. Like what are the expected responses to trauma? And what would be a natural response to going through these things? And who would notice? And would we? If we see kids act in certain ways, would we notice this as trauma? So how do we expect people to respond to trauma? What are the natural responses? And will we be able to notice? Everyone responds differently, definitely. But there's still certain responses that we come to expect. Anger, sadness, every behavior is a response to a need not being met, yes. Meltdown, unrelated to trauma, blow up over little things, yes. Displacement, fear, withdrawn, acting out, anxiety. Sometimes people shut down and they're under the radar. Yeah, that's another thing. Overachiever perfectionism, yes. These are traumatized students. Some of these will get attention. When you look at the squeaky wheel, gets the grease. So a lot of kids learn, this is how you get attention. This is how you get your needs met. So I literally had this example as clients. There were two brothers. One was the good one. He was the older one. And the one that was the bad one was the younger one. The older one got straight A's, hypervigilant, self, self-isolated. Yeah. He got straight A's. And his parents were like, good job. His other brother got bad grades. 
and his parents spent like an hour talking to him about how he's smart, he's so capable, how he should have his grades better, how he could do this and he could do that. His grades stayed bad. But what happened is the brother who was getting good grades, instead of getting straight A's, he got some A's and a B. Got a bunch of attaboys, and then with that B, they spent maybe five minutes talking about what happened and how his grades were slipping. What do you think he did? He decreased his effort. He let his grades slip, got worse grades, yes. And the worse his grades got, the more time his parents spent with him talking to him about how smart he is. So we had to relearn that. We had to reteach the parents, reinforce the good. So when we're thinking about our students, you know, we have to understand that we have to be able to notice when things are going wrong because they're a response to something and we're gonna be at the forefront. So what we're gonna do now, if we're gonna look at the developmental stages and how human development is impacted by trauma. And again, this is to ground what we're going through with our students in the tangible brain so we know that when they're experiencing these things, it's not a matter of desire, but a matter of ability to. When we're looking at these stages, it's just saying that human beings respond at different levels at different times, and you need to kind of master certain things to successfully move on to mastering others. So my daughter, great example. Babies tend to roll stomach to back before back to stomach. So you give them tummy time. It strengthens their neck, strengthens their core, and they move. Rolling front to back helps you. If you're ever on your stomach, you now decrease chance of SIDS. Then they go back to the stomach. When that's strengthened, they're now able to crawl. So then they crawl. And if they crawl and they crawl all over the place and they get into a bunch of things, it causes neurological connections in their brain to be on fire as they're experiencing this new world. And as it happens, they're learning new things. They're learning their own initiative. They're learning they could do things and they want to do things. Mommy, I could do it. I could do it. Daddy, I could do it by myself. And as they go through these stages, they're developing who they are. But what I want to talk about is the most pressing time for human development. The most critical time frame for human development is prenatal to two. Now, as we go from prenatal to two, our body is being genetically hardwired to live in a particular environment. Imagine, I'm, I think of it as an old telephone. Remember the old telephones, they had the switchboards and you had to put all the wires in, not us per se, but the operator. Or if you're looking at a computer, when someone's building the mainframe, they're putting in the internals. That's what we're doing. So as they're going from prenatal to two, you're being hardwired to live in your environment. What happens is you develop attachment. When your caregivers listen to you and meet your needs, you start developing the neurological pathways that let you know, hey, my caregivers are consistent, they care. The world, you externalize it, can be consistent and cares. Then you internalize it. I'm worthy of being cared for, of someone being consistent. Your brain has two hemispheres, left hemisphere, right hemisphere. Left hemisphere is supposedly logic, right is emotional regulation. What happened with that is there is some localization, but they integrate. When you have attachment difficulties, you have difficulties with this integration. And when this difficulty integrating is abound, 
you have difficulty managing your emotions, especially in situations that are going to call for it. And we think of this integration and we think of how we view the world. You get right now into the brain. So the brain, the amygdala, the amygdala is this little almond shaped organ right there. And what happens is when we view something as threatening or traumatic, signals come to the amygdala and it activates the fight, flight, or freeze response. When fight, flight, or freeze is activated, our body gets us ready for a fight, to run, or to stand still. One of the characteristics is oxygen is taken away from our extremities and moved towards our internal, so we function better. So we get less oxygen. Our brain is revved up and ready for danger. Now, as this is happening, prefrontal cortex is having a conversation. The hypothalamus is having a conversation. Hypothalamus is giving us chemicals, adrenaline, whatever we need. The prefrontal cortex is talking to the amygdala like, hey, amygdala, yeah? Is the threat still there? Amygdala like, I don't know. I'm just giving out chemicals. We're, 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 we're in danger. I'll think of that later. So as it's happening, it's causing our bodies to rev up everything. It's causing us to react to the trauma. Now, the last part is the hippocampus. The hippocampus remembers what's happening. And anything that is remotely close to the trauma that you've experienced, the hippocampus remembers and causes you to quickly react. Now, how many people here have ever slipped on ice? And when you were slipping on the ice, did you think about what you were doing or did you just automatically do it? Reflex, automatic, beautiful. That is what's going on. That is a microcosm of your fight, flight, or freeze. Your brain saw a threat, which is you falling. And it automatically did something. If we took the time to pontificate and deliberate and debate, it would take so long we'd hurt ourselves. Instead, your body automatically changes how you're walking, might put your hands out, whatever it is, either to stop you from falling or to stop you from getting hurt when you fall. That's what's happening in traumatized body. It impacts us and it changes us. And the hippocampus stays in a state of readiness, even when the threat's not there. I think of myself. So I haven't lived in the inner city in a very long time. My life is very safe. I live a comfortable life, devoid of a lot of the dramas and things I saw when I was little. So when I was little, I couldn't sit with my back to a door because I have to see what's coming. I remembered my wife's sisters, they visited one of her sisters, they were in Boston. And her sisters were raised very sheltered, different than I was and my wife. So literally I'm walking behind them and they don't know I'm there. I walk slowly, then I start speeding up and I'm so close, I put my head in between them and I say, boo, and they jumped. And I said, what's wrong with you two? They're like, what? I was like, you didn't feel me coming? Like, how do you not know a human being is that close to you? They're like, what, what do you mean? What are we supposed to be doing, on guard? I was like, yes. I was like, every couple of steps, look behind you, see who's behind you. They're like, why would I do that? I was like, cause you don't know who's behind you. I said, if you're not gonna do that, at least use the mirrors in a the car. They're like, what? I was like, look over there. And as I showed them the mirror of cars, the windows of cars. I said, that's a reflective surface. Look at it and look at who's behind you. 
this could save your life. They're like, Rich, we, we, we didn't grow up like that. We don't have to worry about cars coming behind us and who's going to be there and how our life needs to be saved by this knowledge. I was flabbergasted. So now, fast forward to me, and I'm in Five Guys. And I have this bright idea where I'm going to sit with my back to the door. After five minutes, my wife leans over and she says, you need to stop. You're making people in here nervous. I said, I don't care because I'm nervous. We had to switch seats for me to feel comfortable. I have been out of the hood for decades. My life is safe, peaceful, and I still can't sit with my back to the door. The impact of trauma stays with me. Difficulty with self-regulation. Difficulty describing feelings. Now, one of the hard things what they say is inner city children, people who've been exposed to trauma, are exposed to three to 30 million less words than their more affluent, safer counterparts. So when we're talking about language, we're talking about describing feelings. If we don't even have a language for it, how do we do that? Difficulty communicating wishes and desires. I can't sit my back to a door. Yes, it's true. I can't have anyone stand behind me for the same reason. My kid, no one can come behind me without me. Yes, it's trauma. It's a trauma reactivity. And even if your life is safe, it stays with you. The trauma stays. Difficulty communicating wishes and desires. If you've been traumatized and hurt, you don't believe the world is safe. So why would you share? Sharing is considered weak and makes you vulnerable to being hurt and exploited. Often feel self-critical, anxious, worried, ashamed, rarely, rarely enjoy and experience it. Difficulty forming relationships, negative worldview. I think that the interesting thing is forming relationships and worldview. I worked consulting with the intervention program. And what this intervention program did is they wanted to take children who were frequently absent and getting in trouble and put them in a space for 10 days to try and help them get on track. And they were like, well, what can we work on in 10 days? I said, attachment. We can help change how they bond to other people. We just have to show them how. So we did. And what happened was interesting because the first thing we, we had this class where we were trying to teach them about communicating. So I'm there watching as the teacher reads in the story and they read it together. Story about a kid. He's sitting and he makes a science project and he sits down. Then another kid comes into class and pretends to be shooting in the hoops, misses and bumps into his science project and it falls. And the kid's really upset at the science project falling when he's like, you know, I think the kid did it on purpose. I think the kid wanted it to fall and I have to have a conversation with that kid because that's wrong. So then a couple of other kids come. Has anyone here ever worked with kids that you suspect have an ADHD on any type of roof project that involve reading, sustained attention? And what was that like? Frustrating at times. Yes. Disruptive. Yes. Super disruptive. Super frustrating. Distracting. The most non-staying on task in experience ever like trying and yes annoying and disheartening you really do want to give up you're like how is this humanly possible and then you realize they can't help it so here's how the trauma influences that so another three kids come in and they're like oh we're gonna watch the video again i was like nope i was like we are not watching that video again i was like i'm not going through that 
I'll save us all the trouble. What I want is someone to give a synopsis. And they're like, what? I was like, a synopsis. It's when you just give a brief overview of what just happened. So a kid was like, cool. So he gets up there and he's like, yeah, yo, you're going to see a story. It's about a kid. He got a science project out and he's doing good. And then another kid walks into the classroom and says to himself, yeah, I don't like that kid right there. I'm going to knock his science project over and he ain't going to do nothing. So then he walks over, pretends to be shooting the basketball and knocks it over and then looks at him and laughs and walks away. I said, wait, time out. Where did you get this from? Because I thought I watched this video and none of that happened. He was like, yeah, huh? I was like, I don't believe this. Let we reround the video. I said, I need you to show me where that happened. We start, kid, do, 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 science project, puts it down. And as soon as that other kid gets in the frame, he turns the corner, he's in the threshold of the door. He goes, pause it right there. I was like, he's looking in the classroom to see where he's going. Nah, he's plotting on that kid. And what I realized was, this was trauma. Trauma was speaking. How you view the world was speaking. When you have high levels of trauma, you, your word, worldview becomes more negative. You see the world as negative and you start reacting that way. So if you think the world is going to be negative and threatening to you, what do you do? You give negativity back so as to make sure you're not hurting your perspective. Next slide, as we look at the impact of trauma on cognitive, the world isn't safe, people can't be trusted, yes. And if people can't be safe and the world can't be trusted, what happens? And when we look at the brain on the left and the right, the right brain is emotional regulation, which isn't working right because of the attachment we discussed further. At this intervention program, they gave the kids opportunities to learn, to be engaged with what they were doing actively. And they were still doing this crazy, distracting, bounce off the wall thing that you're sitting there like, no. But then when you think of trauma, you start thinking, wait a minute, when a child has been neglected, it could look like ADHD. What? Yeah. The neglect causes them to be hypervigilant. It causes them to not be able to focus on one thing because if you focus too much on one thing, there's danger. So they're damaged. The damage done to their brain because the trauma is impacting them. Reduced ability to concentrate and memorize. Less experience with executive function. Decreased reading ability. Decreased communication skills. Feelings of frustration. And when you're frustrated and you don't like it, increased absenteeism. Now, when we're looking at the impact of trauma on the cognitive, we're thinking of things like executive function. Executive function is your brakes. It is the triage unit to your brain. And when it's not working, what do you do? How do you make meaning of things? People say all the time, go to school, go to school. If I'm traumatized and I live in the inner city and I see a lot of people around me who are poor and they all graduated high school, where's the incentive for me to go to school? If you say to me, go to school and in 10 years, it's going to bring me benefit. That's not appealing. You see, when I'm traumatized, I need it now. School is a beautiful place, but school is designed for long-term success and self-driven success. And if you don't master those skills, you're not going to succeed. But what if you can't? When we're looking at the implications of learning, we look at the integration, the left and the right. The left brain processes positive feelings and, and logic. The right brain processes negative feelings. So when these two parts of the brain have difficulty communicating, there's a problem. So at this intervention program, they give every kid a test to see whether they're left brain or right brain. And of course I took it because it's fun. 
And just like every time I take it, I'm literally 51.49. And it usually comes down to the last question. That's how I am, using left brain and right brain. So remember, right brain is emotional regulation. The right brain is processing negative feelings. And it's working hyperdrive. And the left side was processing positive films or the breaks. Can severe trauma cause autism? The jury's out on whether it cause autism, but it could cause a lot of other disorders that look like autism. And if it was physical trauma, then it might be autism or damage to the brain. But it can cause things like the shutting down, the rocking, the speech, the lack of focus and attention on others when you're speaking to them. So when we did this test to all the kids, Mine was 5149, left brain, right brain, depending on which. These kids were 90-10, all right brain. So the left is logic, processing positive feelings. And the right is processing negative feelings and emotional regulation. And that's being dysregulated by trauma and attachment. So a majority of the children in this program were reacting off the trauma, making sense of their experiences with everyone around them, using the part of the brain that processes negative emotions faster and is not regulated or working. So when teachers would say things to them, correct them, they did not feel that it was coming from a genuine place. They felt the persecution. When the child and his friends and his cohort watched that video, they saw this overblown malicious attempt at hurting someone, even when it wasn't present because their brain was feeding them that information. So as we see our kids, we have to understand, this is what's going on as we're interacting with daily. And we may not be able to change the test score yet, but it's because their brains aren't in the space to be able to receive that. This right here is a pyramid, it's two of them. The typical development of a child is, you know, you're in survival for a very small period of time, prenatal two. You know, your, your needs are met by your caregivers, you're taken care of, you're healthy. Then you learn to regulate. So, for instance, my son and daughter. My wife and I, when my son was little, he didn't like pacifier, but he sucked his fingers. And we were at a crossroads where it was suck fingers or pacifier. And my wife and I had a discussion on it. And we were like, well, there's two types of control. There's external locus of control and there's internal locus control. Does the control come from you or does it come from outside of you? Having a good sense of external locus of control is good because we need society sanctions, but we also have to develop good internal. So what we said was pacifier is a no-go. Your fingers. The reason your fingers is it's you comforting yourself. It's you soothing yourself. So when he did it, we just couch it as that. Hey, if you need it for your comfort, go for it. That was his source. So when you're young, you're learning regulation. We have the benefit of giving our child survival and he's learned to regulate. So you give him skills, tools. Then you start learning where and when I'm supposed to do these things. How do I regulate myself within the social emotional confines of the space I'm in? And then you get into cognition and meaning making and higher end thinking. You see, you spend a small amount of time in survival and then you move up. But conversely, when you've been traumatized, it looks totally different. When you've been traumatized, your pyramid is in survival mode, survival mode, survival mode, then regulation, then social, then cognition. 
how can we get to the higher end order of things when people are still just in survival? You can't run before you crawl. Our kids, their learning is being impacted by our expectations. Yeah, the hierarchy of needs. And when you get into the higher end things, the existential things, the things below it aren't secure. You're not going anywhere. When we think of school, right? Does anyone here know what school was designed for? Train mill workers, yes, to train factory workers. You know, if you look at school, it was to train the factory workers. We had a revolution of industry and we needed people who'd be able to be in the factories. So we needed people to sit in these nice, tight, neat rows and they had to be able to do what they were told when they were told without question and listen to the one person in the front of the room, which is the foreman. Yes, follow belt, time frame, think the same, listen to the foreman in front. So the teacher is a reinforcer of the concept of the foreman. We sit in these neat rows and we're supposed to have everyone fit this model. When people are dysregulating, this model doesn't fit because you can't get into even the regulating of yourself if you're still in survival mode. And when teachers come and they're telling you these wonderful things that you need to learn because years from now, they're gonna be helpful. You can't grasp how they're gonna be helpful. Again, I'll say it. A lot of kids grew up in the inner city. We saw people who graduated high school and still didn't amount to it. The people we saw making money at first appeared to be the drug dealers, the people who are doing bad. But when you're in survival mode, you're just thinking of that. School says, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you the tools for success. But if you're in survival mode, what's considered necessary for success? What's considered a threat? What's considered out of your reach is different. Let's all play this imaginary game where you're with me and we're back in the school and the door is wide open. And this is going to be a training, not on trauma 101, but I'm going to give you a trauma on answering the three greatest questions known to humankind. One, why do we need ID to get ID? I'm going to answer that. Two, I'm going to tell you who put the bomb in the bomb, shabomb, shabomb. That question will finally be answered. And three, I will tell you who will win a race between Superman or Flash. You see, these are the most earth-shattering questions inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. And as we're doing this, we get a phone call, emergency alert on our text that, oh, there was gas found in our, in our building. And it's leaking. It's leaking in the floors above, so we should be safe. I'd like to know if anyone is staying in that building and staying in that training. Nope. Nope, nope. Is what I'm teaching you a great enough incentive to stay in the class? Do you think that it would be worth risking your life or energy? <clears throat> you wanna know who'd win, but no. Survival came first. And that's what's happened with our students. Survival is coming in first. So when we're seeing them and they're having their reactions, they're reacting to survival. We're seeing the symptoms that they're experiencing. They're experiencing physical, acting out, feeling upset, physical reaction to things, upsetting thoughts or images. They're having bad dreams. These are the things that show that survival is what's not being met and they need it. They need survival and they need us. When we're looking at development, the relationship you build from primary caregivers, from prenatal to two are instrumental in your ability to feel like the world cares about you but it is not a foregone conclusion. 
people and how they treat you can reinforce and change your views on how you connect with others and how they connect with you. So your jobs, when you're connecting with your students is slowly rebuilding their levels of attachment and connection to people because they need you. And we see that they're jumping or easily scared, overly cautious and careful. We think about the perfectionism. Like how many people here have had students where they're easily scared, they're jumpy. And do we automatically assume that is trauma? You need to know your student, <clears throat> yeah. Because a lot of times what's going on with our kids is they're traumatized and their behaviors will speak to that trauma. It says 72% of the kids were jumped or, jumping or easily scared and pandemic have left them all feeling unsure of the future. That's a beautiful thing. Not that it's happening, but that we could bring that into the room. How many people here when you were young, people told you if you worked hard, you will be successful in the future? And what was that like when you heard it? You worked with refugee children and the schools would call the program you to work for and they call the kids bad kids, right? You see, you, you were told you were gonna be something, the future you believe in. As a millennium, pretty, pretty empty words. You were told you could be anything. You were told the future had promise. Yes, but it put pressure on me to provide my own steps to the future, but it felt tough to visualize. Yes. Yes, especially for kids of color with tough circumstances. <clears throat> yes, the circumstance that the kids live in every day, and it doesn't take into account system, systemic problems. Yeah, because we haven't even gotten to that type of trauma. When we look at how systemic and endemic that some of the conditions of our children's lives are at no fault of their own. When you mentioned the kids you were working with were considered bad kids, not traumatized kids. They were not bad kids, they were great kids. <laughs> exactly, that's what I mean. They were considered bad kids, not by you. But when you talk about a system that looks at kids, I worked that behavioral school I worked with. When people would talk about the school, you know, like that school often made the news. Like one time we were in, it was graduation. And, you know, they had like, a, there's always a huge police presence at the school during graduation. And the parent was like, you know, isn't this kind of overkill? All this. And the kid was found with three guns on. I don't know why he had three guns, but I'm guessing probably to hand off to other people. So yeah, that school was like a jail. And it does reinforce the pipeline. But people thought these kids were bad. No child wakes up in the morning hoping to fail. They want you to notice them, help them smile, them, accept them, love them. Yes. And this right here is what we have to remember when our kids are doing things that we don't like. They're not bad kids. The same kids that were there, school needs to be more intimate, less institutional. And as people who, first assumption, care, I think we have to start instituting practices that reinforce this on an individual level. I remember where I'd work, as when someone says, they remember from Alvarez, I can't see, right? So I'd work with Alvarez. And one of the things I'd do is every kid I saw would get a, hi, good morning, how you doing? And kids at one point would walk up to me like, Dr. Booth, why are you always smiling? And I go, because I get to see you. They'd be like, stop it, stop it. I'm like, but it's true. You brighten my day. And these kids would brighten up. I would have the most 
thuggish kids in the world, I'd sit down at the table. What you eating? Yes, putting it. I'm depositing in the bank because eventually I'm going to need to take some of that out. I'm going to need to rely on our relationship at some point to stop something. But we have to build these relationships. At a school I was working with, some kids want to be invisible. We need to see them and help them to know they're safe and important. Yes, I would sometimes when I'm was walking the hallway of school and there was a kid, he just walked out of class. I didn't know, he just walked out of class, he went to the bubble. And I see the teacher and I see she's relatively new and she's trying to figure out what to do. And she goes, would you please have him come back to class? So I know the kid. So I walk over and I do this to his arm. I'm like, what are you doing? Just a little gentle, boop. not even hard, just do. And he felt someone touch me. He looked, I was like, watch that face. He was like, I, I was like, I need smiles. I need teeth. And he just started laughing. He's like, my fault, doc. I, I didn't know it was you. I was like, but why are you so on edge? For this is school. Like, stop grilling people. And, you know, we joked around. And I leaned over real quick, like whispering. I go, what are you doing out of the class? He goes, my fault. I was thirsty. I was like, go back to class and apologize to your teacher for being rude. And he goes to say it right then. And so I like, I said, not right now in front of me. Stop, get your water and do it. So he stops. You, you know, we, we, we do our dap hug. And he goes back and he's like, sorry, miss. Blah, blah. And she's like, Pick. later I saw her and I talked to her. I said, two things, man. I was like, one, you shouldn't abdicate the rights of your classroom responsibilities and connections so quickly to others. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, that was a great moment to learn with your student, to engage, to talk, to share, to take that mistake that that student was making and build a stronger relationship. But by calling me into it quickly, it made me and his relationship stronger while diminishing yours. And I said, two, most of what you do when it comes to discipline have already been done before the incident. So when people are talking about deposited into the savings and then having to withdraw later, this is what we're talking about. If children are going through much trauma, they're not able to think of anything but how to keep themselves safe and there's no capacity to learn, you have to gain their trust. It's true. You have to think of the shame involved, right? I, <clears throat> this job's 90% attitude, it is. I remembered when I went to this prestigious high school, I disliked that high school from day one. The first thing you do when you walk into the school is they bring you to this large wooden auditorium with dark, beautiful oak and the busts of prominent people who've been there. And the principal gets up there and he says, look to the left of you, look to the right of you. They will not be there when you graduate. I'm 13. I'm a little kid from the hood. I've been told this is my one path to success. You're going to succeed because you're smart. And this is it or you, you failed everything. Yeah, like it's a Navy SEAL training. And here they are telling me this. I did not know how to study. I had problems at that school. And my first day, that was what they told me. Then I go to homeroom and I have this teacher. I remember his name. I remember him. I'm, as you would say, my, my friend, she jokes around. She goes, Rich. What happens, she, she's, she's a psychologist. She's PhD in psychology as well. She said, Rich, I just asked you a question. 
I was like, what question is that? She's like, what happens when you drink coffee? I go, coffee makes me sleepy. She goes, that's what I suspect. And she just started shaking her head and laughing. And immediately I said, oh, is anyone familiar with the movie Analyze This? You, you, you. And for those of you who don't know that joke that she was saying, see, coffee is a stimulant. When you have ADHD, stimulants actually work to help calm you down because it tends to stimulate or rev up the part of your brain that is usually slower and is supposed to be kind of like the brakes. So I'm hyper. I'm one of those kids, my friend, she jokes around the time, like you're one of them undiagnosed kids who fell through the cracks. Like if you were born now, you'd have been, you'd have been IEP'd up the wazoo, right? So I was this kid. I'm bouncing up and down on my seat. The bell hasn't rang. So I, in my head, I'm within that right. So I'm bouncing up and down. I'm doing all these things. And the teacher comes and he looks and he's like, Mr. Booth, could you explicate your posterior to the rear of the room and as to not disturb the other students? And, and he starts saying all this stuff. So me being me, I look at him and I go, excuse me, sir. That was very unnecessary of you. You were quite verbose and, and engaged in redundant language. It would have been much more succinct for you to say, Mr. Booth, could you please sit down? As opposed to using big words and multisyllabic phrases to impress seventh graders. And then I sat down. I disliked him from that moment. He was my homeroom teacher. He was my science teacher. In science class, this was me. He would ask me a question. He'd give me a paper, I'd put it on my desk. And I'd sit there for like the whole class. And he would sit there, he's like, Mr. Booth, I know you're smart, why aren't you doing the work? And I would look at him and I would go, because I do not like you. But that's again, I was failing because I did not like him. And he said, Mr. Booth, I am already where I need to be. This doesn't impact me, you not doing your work. I said, well, it must impact you enough that you've wasted two minutes out of the precious class time to try and tell me to do something that you clearly see I'm not doing. You see, I was that child. I didn't know at the time that the trauma was getting to me. I was in survival mode. I did not know how to get out of it. I was reacting as if it was danger. So what I'm saying is the connections that we have with our students that are traumatized are going to be the difference in how their lives progress. At this intervention program, we had the kids do this activity where they literally could listen to a rap that wasn't too bad. They would pick their own beat because it was a DJ software. This is, and they could make a song and it was part of their schoolwork. So I do doing my rounds, you know, going to different rooms, just sitting, observing and talking. And there are four kids. One kid is there, has headphones on and he's writing his music, doing his thing. And there's three other kids clustered and they are jumping up and down there. See, they are doing everything but the work. Now in my head, I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? 
you literally have the opportunity in class to listen to music you want, write a rap you want about what you want for a grade, and you're still not doing what you're supposed to. And I had to remind myself, trauma, physiology. So I walked to the teacher and I said, excuse me, could we separate them? She's like, sure, but they're not listening. I said, okay. So I walked over and I said, what y'all listen to? So they showed me what they listened to. And I was like, oh, this is nice. I was like, don't like him, don't like him. I like him. Cool. I said, why aren't y'all doing the work? Oh, because he didn't. They start joking around and like almost play fight. And for me, I play fighting is a no-no because play fighting leads to real fight. But that's what they do. They horse around. That's how they engage. And I eventually said, hey, you know, y'all want to get to work on, you have to move. So here comes the conundrum. Who moves? Why do they move? Because if I say move, it's a rejection. But here's the relationship part. So I said, who can move? So one kid was like, I ain't moving. I sat here first. Other kid was like, I'm not moving. I was here second. The third kid was like, I ain't moving unless someone moves me. I go, so we can move you? He's like, I ain't moving unless someone moves me. I was like, thank you. So I take his chair and hit the desk with him in it. And I go, and I act like I'm driving a car and I slowly move with his permission. The teacher looked at me and said, it's okay. We have that bond. I got permission to do that. And I moved him. Then the other kid was like, man, I'm not sitting with you now. You're going to get me in trouble. And then he moved. And the class kind of was able to function. Didn't yell. Didn't come in. I was frustrated to the highest order. But I had to remember trauma. I had to remember that trauma and neglect looks like ADHD. If you are witnessing other people getting harmed, your physiology is geared towards being on edge so that you're able to spot the threat first before it gets you. When the kids are engaging in horseplay, I remember trauma makes it difficult to, to make friends. So a lot of kids are doing things because they don't know how to make friends. So how are we showing them that this is how you do it? How are we showing our kids that the behaviors that they're choosing or the behaviors that their bodies are automatically doing are not productive? When we look at the kids and how they're behaving in the classroom, how often have you had trouble concentrating in the last two weeks? The largest percentage is almost always. So how are we teaching children if they have trouble concentrating because they're thinking about something? Else? How are we making time and understanding for them? If those kids are seeing a video where a person walks into a room and that person is already plotted on another student, what happens when we walk in a room? and we might've had a bad day and for a split second, our facial expression says, or they think you're thinking something. How we respond to them, how we engage with them is going to change their lives. It's going to rebuild neurological connections and show them that the world thinks highly of them and they might be able to trust us. When we look at symptoms in the classroom, how often have you had trouble falling or staying asleep in the last two weeks? A great majority of our kids are not getting sleep. And they're not getting sleep for multiple reasons. But when you don't get sleep, for everyone here, if you don't get sleep, how do you act? Like a jerk, <clears throat> grouchy, like a zombie, irritable. Do these sound like our kids? And when we now add a pandemic. So now let's say you had a favorite teacher. 
or favorite subject that you knew that you could go to and you could get the beautiful positive praise that you knew you walk in and you'd see their smile and you feel the warmth on your face as they maybe give you a high five or like, you know, you did great today. Here's a Twix or, oh my gosh, did you get a new haircut? And all that's been taken away in the instant and you now have to go through Zoom. Behaviors in the classroom. How often have you been feeling irritable or having fits of anger in the last two weeks? They're angry, they're hurt and it's showing. And we have to make sure that we're able to contain and hold them and create spaces where they are not negatively judged because they're traumatized. <clears throat> when we look at response in the classroom, right? We have to know our kids. We have to know their trauma. We have to know what's going on. Again, at this behavioral school, I had a kid and him and his teacher didn't get along, but he was able to manage. So one day he's in class, and he's doing his work. He's quiet. This kid's never quiet. He's quiet, doing his work. And in a bout of, I think it, I do it. Oh, and he runs up to the desk and grabs a pencil. And the teacher yells at him for grabbing the pencil. And he flips. I mean, he goes berserk. He starts throwing F-bombs. He started throwing other letters of alphabet and there's a water bubbler. And I don't know why they have a water bubbler in this class. But he's like, I should take this and throw it at your head, F you. And, th and then he storms out the classroom and slams the door. Like, wow. Just so happens to be, I'm walking in the building and I see him storming down. And I call to him and he looks at me and I put my hand out. We give him the, by the way, to everyone who doesn't know, especially adolescent inner city males, right? You can't just hug. You have to dap hug. Because you have to have that buffer of masculinity. And I just dap hugged him. And I said to him, it's all right, let's go to my office. Just, just, just maintain. And we go to my office. We close the door and he starts bawling. I had a tissue already ready. And he's bawling, bawling, bawling. Why is he bawling, you might ask? Because that week is the anniversary of his brother's murder. His brother was found murdered, shot execution style, found naked, dumped in a cemetery. He's never processed that. If there's any day you could have just let him get that pencil, any week, that would have been it. He was trying, he was like, he was like, you know what got me so heated? I was trying, he was like, doc, I was quiet. I didn't say nothing to nobody. So how are we with dealing with our kids and their emotions and understanding how the trauma impacts them? A downside observation I've made over the years of behaviors and dealing with them, saying it or practicing does not happen as much. And because they're children, we need more attention. Yeah, and they can push our buttons. Like I said, I'm, this isn't like the perfect world where these kids are all angels. Like this behavioral school, like, I mean, kids were, they were tough. Like they, they, they were legitimately tough. And a lot of them were dysregulated and they challenge you, they'll cuss at you, they'll swear at you. And you know, for me, I was aware of my triggers. So one of my triggers are disrespect. I don't like people disrespecting, but these kids will do it. So how do we find ways to talk to them knowing that their trauma is there and we feel 
hurt by them, when they're being inattentive, when they're not able to follow directions, when they're arguing, they're aggressive, they hear outwards, rapid speech. Usually it means their fight, flight, or freeze has been activated. You see, one of the things is fight, flight, or freeze is proximal. It's cognitive, it's assessment-based. If I think I could beat you, or you can't hurt me physically, I will fight you. You see? I could get in your face, I could fight you, because you're not gonna do anything. If I think I can't fight it, if I can't get away from it, I'll run. I can't get out of it. How many people here have seen kids? When it's time to read or it's time to do something, they're not good at it. They will find a way out. They'll crack a joke. They'll say something inappropriate. So they get kicked out. So we have to know our kids. Find healthy ways to get personal with them. Yes, showing you have feelings too. Even being an adult doesn't mean you can't be wrong or scared. I've been wrong with students. I've said the wrong thing. And then I'll say, yo, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought this was happening at the time. I don't mind being wrong. And they're like, what? Like, I don't mind being wrong. If it's to help you. When we see our kids and they're doing these things, the last one is freeze. If you can't fight it and you can't run from it, what do you do but freeze? Think of the advice for a grizzly bear attack. You can't outrun a grizzly. A grizzly bear runs 35 miles per hour and Usain Bolt, Shout out to Jamaica. I think he runs, what, 25, 26, 27 around? So Usain Bolt's not outrunning a grizzly. You can't fight a grizzly. So what do they say? Play dead. And that's what happens with us. We shut down if it's too much. So when our kids are doing these things, we have to start knowing them and knowing the signs. And freeze could look like ADHD. Yeah, <laughs> run faster than a slow guy. Yes, that is the best thing. I, I guess learning to trip. We're looking at the classroom, right? Our kids, when they're under-aroused, dissociative, they may appear daydreaming, shutting down, spacing out, withdrawn, perfectionism, hypervigilance, aware of everything. That hypervigilance, it's, it looks like trauma because it is. It looks like ADHD, but it's trauma. It's, it's I have to know what's going on. If I'm traumatized and you put me in front of a window, Everything outside that window has to be accounted for. If you put a bunch of loud people behind me, every time I'm going to turn around. If I have poor friend-making skills and the person who's the distractor is behind me and I want to be their friend because they're the coolest person in their class and they happen to tell funny jokes, I'm going to look and laugh. We have to know what these signs of trauma look like and know what our kids are. We have to reconceptualize how we make sense of them and the meaning. They're not bad kids. They're not unreachable. They are hurt. They're traumatized and their trauma's just gotten worse and our trauma's gotten worse, which means two groups of people are reacting from a place of more and increased pain and trauma. So we have to be aware of ourselves and what we're going through. And we have to start being more aware of what they're going through and actually not look at it as an excuse, but an actual reason. And when we're interacting with our kids, knowing that what they're doing is not a matter of will. No one wants to get kicked out of school. No one wants to not be able to read at their grade level. No one wants to take it from someone who got kept back. And I would get F's in Latin. I didn't want to not know the Latin. When I was getting bad grades, I wanted to know. 
but things are going on that was way beyond that. Kids do what they learn works well for them, regardless of how we feel about it. Kids do what they know. They do what's protective. They do what's adaptive. And we have to start understanding that sometimes we have to change a little bit of what we do and focus on the connections we're making, knowing our students, knowing what their trauma reaction looks like. And sometimes you don't have to know what their trauma is, just know what their baseline is. And when they react and deviate greatly from their baseline, we're able to then say, okay, something's wrong. So we're coming to the end. And I hope this has been helpful. I hope we get the sense to understand just how grave the situation of our students are. They're going through a lot of pain. They're seeing a lot. When we think about it, in Rhode Island, wasn't it maybe two years ago, a student was killed outside of a school? What's the trauma like for kids who live in that neighborhood? That same school that I would pass, that the kid was stabbed, my wife said, wow, that really traumatized you. And I go, no, it didn't traumatize me. It, it happened so long ago. She goes, every single time we pass this school, you mentioned it. So even 30 something years later, that spot where I saw that happen still impacts me. So what we're saying is, please be aware of your impact and your relationship is so important for them. <clears throat> Thank you. And there's more trainings to come. So focus on the small things, inquire about absences, knowing their baseline. Respond to behaviors of inquiry as opposed to accusation. How are you doing? And build relationships, build relationships, build relationships. This will change their life. And I'm telling you because I've been told by kids later in life that had horrible things happen to them. They say those moments where I talked to them or someone else talked to them and told them they could meant something to them. So thank you very much. Any questions? <clears throat> thank you, Dr. Booth. Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom, your expertise, your stories, and most of all, your message of hope and resilience. <clears throat> you are a living example of- Even beyond, even beyond my wife, she's, um, she, she, she's a therapist as well. She has her PhD in psychology also. And she does, she, she's amazing. So she works with, people who've lost someone to homicide, right? She, so everyone she works with, they've lost someone to homicide. So when she was doing a dissertation, she brought up this concept to me that, you know, everyone uses the word resilience. And she said, it's not resilience you want. I said, what do you want? She was like, post-traumatic growth. Resilience means you got back to the states you were before the trauma. Post-traumatic growth is you were able to incorporate that and move beyond it even more. So... Post-traumatic growth. That's a good one. I like that. You know? I just want to remind everybody to complete the survey. We really want your feedback. And um, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Be well. Hey! Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, Please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.